Kelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time, we're picking up part three of our discussion of Marx and Nature with Tom O'Brien. As usual, if you didn't catch the first two episodes, I'd recommend pausing this one, going back to, and starting from there. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. So, Burkett's going to get into that question a little bit in chapter 13, but before that we have chapter 12. So we have nature and capitalism's historical historical limits. Uh, So he says, this chapter locates nature and environmental crises in the context of Marx's analysis of capitalism's historical limits. These historical limits involve more than the tendencies towards overaccumulation and falling profitability of capital that were pointed out by Marx. They also encompass an overall crisis of capitalist relations as the historical culmination of the fundamental contradiction between production for profit and production for human needs, a contradiction that takes on many forms, including, but not solely, accumulation crises. By analyzing environmental crises as part of this historical crisis of capitalist relations, one can see the potential role of ecological conflicts in the transition from capitalism to communism. So this chapter is quite interesting in the sense that it doesn't deny the importance of the business cycle or crises of accumulation, overaccumulation, or of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. It doesn't deny these things as being important, but it kind of asks the question, so what? Right? Like, so what? If there is a catastrophic crisis of capitalism, what does that really mean for the proletariat? How do you get from there to communism. What's the logic there, right? There's there's also this like thing where there's there's a fundamental underlying contradiction that manifests itself in many different crises, and that like exactly one of those crises as like picking a card from a deck is probably a mistake. You need to be looking at the hand that's holding the cards, right? And so when we have a catastrophic crisis of capitalism, what does it mean for the proletariat? It means being deprived of work, and being deprived of work means being deprived of the use values needed for life. So we see the irrationality of capitalism when the productive forces continue to get more and more powerful, you know, every year over year, we have all these innovations that happen, but we still find ourselves again and again in the situation of people being out on the street, of people starving, being forced into inhumane working conditions because of the crisis, all these kinds of things. You know, these are things that are happening right now. And that highlights the contradiction between use value and exchange value. It highlights that you in capitalism, you have a society that prioritizes value and accumulation over human needs. And to get from there to revolution is a situation where, you know, you the proletariat 
kind of gets shaken out of that state of just assuming you grow up, you get a job, you work for a boss, and that's life, right? Because the, the system just doesn't make sense in a crisis. And that's why crises matter, you know, is because it, it actually shakes things up a bit. And the environmental crisis is another crisis of that type, is what Burkett is saying. I come away from this with a strong impression that, like, uh, and, and I'm fairly convinced, actually, that, like, any, any Marxism that makes any fucking sense has to be an eco-Marxism. And any kind of ecology that makes any sense has to be an eco-Marxism. They, they over, they, they, it's, it's not even an overlap. They're two circles circum, uh, imposed on each other that, like, this, ha this is the way to get out of the ecological crisis and, like, the, the ecological, like, use value angle is the way out of capitalism. Like, these, it's, it's kind of baffling that, like, eco-Marxism has to be posited as this, like, subtype of Marxism, right? Like, it's a, like a subgenre of punk or whatever. It, like, it, it kind of has to be the main act. Like, it, it can't be just a niche interest. I don't know if I go that far. Like I've kind of, I, I think I've kind of got kind of differing opinions on these couple of chap. This chapter, like, like for me, like I, I think he's. I think there are a couple of different crises theories you can justifiably make from out of capital. The the overaccumulation crisis is essentially the culmination of that use uh, value value distinction like that contradiction is is how that's the falling rate of profit that's how that contradiction plays out economically internally to the system i, I think i'm pretty sure that uh, bob Bellamy foster john Bellamy foster and the monthly review crew they don't think over accumulation crises like marx says is a thing yeah they they they, they dismiss they follow uh what is it sweezy in dismissing the uh tendency of the rate of profit to fall yeah okay so they are like you know to me reading this chapter it's like they had a keisha theorem written all over it it was basically like saying well let's not look at that stuff that's kind of like the keisha theorem let's just talk about the overall problem you see in a crisis where you know people see Poor people on the street and farmers destroying potatoes at the same time. You know, people going hungry and crops rotting in the fields. You know, and, you know, I, I think that uh, there is probably more to be said than just, like, overaccumulation means more than just that, that, that strict one. So, to me, that's... No, of, of course it, it means more, but what is the cash value when it comes to the experience of the proletariat? Like, I, I, I completely agree with you that there is much more to be said about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But, you know, how does that translate into communist organizing is, is the question here. Well, I think how, really how it, for me, it's like where it really ties in is that if a system is not able to be productive, if the system is in crisis, that it, the, what, like Marx says in the, the Communist Manifesto, that the, the social relations act as a fetter on, on, on production, where like, I don't think you get that just from an individual crisis. You get that from like a large whole scale inability to get out of repeated profit related crises. But, but that... That, that's where you can have a, you know, over decades, the development of a different proletarian consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Because you see the repetition of crises is not an isolated incident. This is a thing that happens again and again. 
or even a worsening, like for yeah. example, like a worsening and and and, and increasing, like you know, if we if we look at those long term global rate of profits going from fucking fifty percent down to like six or percent or something, and we see what's what's happening now. I and I just I feel like they're shying away from overaccumulation. Like, but apart from that, like I think there are two. For me, like reading this, like the environmental one really jumps out. You know, this is an obvious tension within use value and value, and that they're really. It's going to be a global reckoning, and maybe in our lifetimes, maybe not, maybe in our lifetimes. But you know, if you read like Capital Volume One, he spends a long time talking about how the the working class in England were destroyed as a class. Their their body, you know, everything, the hours they worked, the children were like fit for the dust heap after like by the time they're twenty, you know, all of this type of stuff. But capital, the whole of capital, the whole capital class was affected by this thing. They acted in in their systemic interest. They responded to like pressure, but also was in the systemic interest. I think as global capitalism gets to a global ecological crisis, I do think capital will, will move to save itself. So I I don't think it's a terminal crisis. I think that capitalism can go green. Capitalism, you know, like oh, of course. And so like that that yeah, tension. But- what what green yeah but what green capitalism looks like is using environmental engineering you know using aerosols to reduce the amount of energy that's coming in from the sun and permanent regulation through geoengineering like that is that is what environmental capitalism looks like it's not capitalism overcoming the, the uh, overcoming the contradiction it's capitalism finding new ways to displace it perhaps but that's not a given because like i think like it's one thing introducing like a toad into australia to like eat something or other and then the thing goes goddamn mad and just destroys everything like it's one thing to do with like you know sugarcane crops in australia and then to do it with the, the actual entire thing there is a higher risk so like for example right like the way I look at it is like in America, right? The U.S. government buys a new aircraft carrier, right? It costs them like I don't know, like ten billion dollars or something, right? Right? If the government wasn't a purchaser in America, right? That the value that the, the labor that went into building that thing would have no value. It would be a useless object. There would be no one who could buy it. And so, in essence, like society in America, as in, you know, the bourgeois society, the government decides that is productive labor. And I think that, you know, the capitalist economic global class will come to the realization that we need to, you know, in the same way we think like a warship is a productive labor, we need to determine certain eco work as a productive labor and then they can just make profit on that. They can determine that, you know, forest planting, rejuvenation of this ecosystem is productive labor and they'll take a profit out of it. I think that's where they're going to go as opposed to geoengineering, which is more high risk. Maybe I'm wrong, but like, I think that, like, I don't, I hate to read these crises as terminal. You know, it's very easy for us as lefties to read these. Well, but he's not, he's not saying it's a terminal crisis, Tom. He's, the whole thing is that there are no terminal crises as such. There are only different kinds of crises that might precipitate a proletarian revolution. And eco- an ecological crisis is one such 
crisis. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Yeah. With you. Like, I don't want to disagree. I think we're maybe yeah. disagreeing on. We don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> We're in furious agreement. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we disagree on that point. Yeah, because I. I, I don't think it's an automatic. There is no automatic process here. That, that. That's what he's saying. He's just saying, look, there are different things that can break the sort of iron identity of employer and employee that structures the entire society and reproduces itself generation after generation. And one of them is. Accumulation crises, such as those precipitated by the falling rate of profit, and another one is uh, ecological crises, which both lay bare the irrationality of capitalism in terms of use value production for human needs. One other thing I think that they point to, sorry if I'm being uh, very argumentative here, I'm not trying to be argumentative, I'm just Irish, is that, uh, like, I thought, like, it was very, very strong, the book in talking about the alienation of workers. And one thing that I thought, like, that, see, you know, with all our dialectical thinking, our systems thinking, to me, it seems like there's a... And I don't know... Kyle, you probably know way more about this than me, uh, who's had a st head stuck in capital for about 10 years. It's like, an alienation theory of crisis seems to me to be something that is fundamental to capitalism. I've got, I've got something I just read there yesterday. There was a report out about uh, mental health in America. Do you want to, let's hear, the, hear these stats. Like, these to me are, are absolutely mind-blowing. You know, capitalist alienation stats. For Americans between 18 to 24 years old, so they were asked about, have you considered, seriously considered, killing yourself in the last month? Okay. So not like, oh, have you just said, oh, fuck this. It's like, have you seriously considered it, right? Uh, from 18 to 24-year-olds, 25.5% have considered it, right? For the 20 to 25 to 44 year, year olds, it was 16%. 18.6% of Hispanics, 15% of African Americans. Uh, the two groups of the largest percentage who said yes, Americans with less than a high school degree and unpaid caregivers, both of whom have 30% or one in three. A full 10% of the US population generally has seriously contemplated suicide in the month of June. Like... That is fucking staggering. Whoa. Yeah. Holy shit. Well, yeah, and, and this is because our mental health is obviously conditioned <laughs> by the use values we can our enjoy. Access to nature. <laughs> right? And right now, mm -hmm. they're not good. You know? They're not good. And the social fabric, literally, you know, the number of friends people have has gone down in America, like, by, I think some crazy, like, 50% in the last, like, 50 years. Yeah. The number of people who like their neighbors and talk to them has gone down, like, by staggering amounts. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, this is, this is, this is the alienation that we're talking about. Because, yeah, uh, it's, you know, like, it, it, it's especially clear in uh, this pandemic, when you have a very weak social fabric because your isolation is all the more aggravated. And th that is, you know, something that people need to survive is social connectedness. And uh, capital ain't going to give it to you um, <laughs> unless you're on Tinder. Even then. Uh, and even then, that's not a very good, a very good connection.
<laughs> you can get that little brain chip, like Musk, Elon Musk, yeah. in your brain, and then he'll play music into your head, and you know, like you can probably never link you up to your Facebook friends in real, you know, so you can have like yeah. cyber real connections. Yeah, I mean that's what he wants to do. <laughs> the fucking nightmare. But uh, you know, like I, I do seriously think like you talk to people these days, you talk to young people these days. And when they're talking about their alienation from society, they're also like fucking capitalism, right? Not everybody, but there's a lot of people saying that, right? Like, like I, I am miserable in this society. Fuck capitalism. Like there, there's an actual connection between those two things that is being made in people's heads. So revolution might not be that far away. The dialectics. This is the up-ramp towards the back of the book then about like kind of these more positive sort of notions of like getting this stuff towards class struggle, right? And um, something I appreciated about chapter 13 was that um, it kind of points out how Marx is often kind of accused of this like narrow industrialist sort of vision of like the basis for class struggle, but he's just going through the kind of reasons why that's not entirely the case really, that um, Marx and Engels do talk about a more general sort of like social thrust rather than like the industrial proletariat being specifically and the only possible kind of um, way that could develop. But it's it, it's sort of there as well, you know? Yeah, it's the stuff in Marx and Engels that talks about, like, the relationship between the employed workers and the unemployed that can develop, right? Or the relationship between town and country that can develop. These kinds of things can help to build a revolutionary proletarian class that is not just about the tendency towards organization that develops out of concentration in factories. Because, you know, honestly, like, okay, so Marx has this passage that, you know, this real bleak passage that Burkett quotes, it is already contained in the concept of free laborer that he is a pauper, virtual pauper. According to his economic conditions, he is merely a living labor capacity. Necessity on all sides without the objectives necessary to realize himself as labor capacity. If the capitalist has no use for his surplus labor, then the worker may not perform his necessary labor, nor produce his necessaries. Then he cannot obtain them through exchange. Rather, if he does obtain them, it is only because alms are thrown to him from revenue. He can live as a worker only insofar as he exchanges his labor capacity for that part of capital which forms the labor fund. This exchange is tied to conditions which are accidental for him and indifferent to his organic presence. He is thus a virtual pauper. And then he says later on, It is not enough that the conditions of labor are concentrated in a mass in the shape of capital at the one pole of society, while at the other are grouped masses of men who have nothing to sell but their labor power. Neither is it enough that they are compelled to sell it voluntarily. The advance of capitalist production develops a working class, which by education, tradition, habit, looks upon the conditions of that mode of production as self-evident laws of nature." The organization of the capitalist process of production, once fully developed, breaks down all resistance. The constant generation of a relative surplus population keeps the law of supply and demand of labor, and therefore keeps wages in a rut that corresponds with the wants of capital. 
The dull compulsion of economic relations completes the subjection of the laborer to the capitalist. Direct force outside economic conditions is of course still used, but only exceptionally. In the ordinary run of things, the laborer can be left to the natural laws of production, i.e. to his dependence on capital, a dependence springing from and guaranteed in perpetuity by the conditions of production themselves. So this is this is Marx, and obviously you can tell it's Marx because the writing's so much better. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's incredibly depressing as a vision of the potential of the proletariat, and it's it's a vision that really corresponds to lived experience. You know, we've all had those moments where we look around us and we say, "This is just all it fucking is." We're all just bound to the wage bill and we're all brought up to think getting a job is the be all and the, the, the be all of life, right? The be all and end all of life. And this dynamic interacts with the system of labor unions, right? Where labor unions become economistic and the organization that Marx and Engels valued out of the development of labor unions because they didn't give a shit about wage increases. Like, that's the thing he makes clear in this chapter. They were not interested in the wage increases as the primary objective of labor unions. It was the organization of the working class into a set of organizations that actually manage their own production and manage society that they saw as a bridge towards a communist future. And if you have labor unions that are economistic and are just are constantly suppressing that organization and working towards simple wage gains, it has no real contradiction with this extremely bleak picture of capitalism that that Marx is laying out here. And, and in that case, it's like, what hope is there for communism? Right? Because if you can't put your if you can't put your faith in the unions coming out of concentration in industry, and this subjection to the wage bill is perpetual and natural under capitalism, how do you ever get from A to B? You know, like, even if there is a contradiction between exchange value and use value, we are so subjected to capital logic that we are just incapable of acting on it. Or, or the gap between reason and actuality is too fast. This is the Frankfurt School perspective, right? Is like they're like, rationality has ceased to function in history. Like, all we have is this perverse rationality that reproduces this again and again forever. And so Burkett is trying to lay out some alternative reasons for why proletarian consciousness might arise and revolution might arise other than just the development of unions in the factories. That, that point towards, you know, the, the, the economistic design of these unions, just wage-raising unions, it reminds me of the discussion that you were having in your beer one. I think Shane is making the point of you need to have the correct metrics in system four that measure what you're actually trying to get towards where like i think you were using the one about organizing for rent strikes and like the wrong type of metric would be how many people in our organization and the right metric is what's the level of evictions and unions are basically 
optimized for wage increases or say how many of our members do we still have would not have been like made unemployed versus overthrowing the government or overthrowing capitalism or whatever the fuck you want to say how like you know how much organization of the economy are we actually doing you know how how many of our members are graduating to that level of competence that we actually have that like you know proletarian system five that is developing and functional in beer speak it's nil right now (laughs) yeah yeah and 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 and, you know this is a thing that that marx and engels railed against in their letters and stuff but ultimately unions did not go the way that marx and engels hoped right that dynamic that they identified in the factories led towards economism and so if we're looking to have a rational basis to think that we might have a communist revolution, we have to look to other dimensions of Marx's work and Engels's work to justify it. And so, you know, that's why they're talking about like there being these multiple crisis tendencies, there being these this contra- this fundamental contradiction that manifests itself in other dimensions of society. And like, you know, when I think about a crisis of accumulation, Right. When, when the 2008 crisis happened, you know, it's easy to think that this like doomer vision that Marx provides is just really it. But I do honestly think I went through that process of seeing like this is irrational. You know, this is not a rational system. This is fucked up. <laughs> like as a worker, that made sense to me when I saw all these horrific things happening around me everywhere. And it's the same thing with the ecological crisis. You know, I don't go through a single week, like not a single week goes by that I'm not like horrified at the degree of ecocide that we as a species are committing right now in the name of capital accumulation. Like you just think about it and you think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe we'll be able to save the sparrows or something. (laughs) Fuck the sparrows. But then you're like, well, fuck that. Like it's. You know, I put a bird feeder out to try to help the birds survive, but that's not going to stop capitalism. Like, come on, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I've I've gone through very similar sort of things of like this kind of thing of like, oh, you know, we better, if we're going to move to a new apartment, we better not get one with gas heating or whatever, or or like we better better stick to electric and stuff. And it's like, no, it's kind of fucking pointless. Like the, the transformation has to be at a societal level. It's not, you can't kind of weasel your way out of it as an individual. But like, so probably because we're, we're going to need to finish up pretty soon, but like uh, Burkett does try to finish up on some positive points here. And it, it kind of, would it be fair to say that a lot of this comes down to the imperative of the working class that they must overcome capitalist competition in order to satisfy their needs and in order to institute a rational system of, um, of society? Is, is that, it's just that, that there is an imperative. It's no guarantee of success, but the imperative, imperative is there. Yes, it's rational to do so. And it's also the fact that when there is the exchange between the worker and the capitalist, the capitalist is always trying to get profit or surplus value so they can get profit out of the worker, whereas the worker is working to get use values for their life. It's, it's work to live rather than live to work. Yes. And the capitalist system is continually throwing up barriers to accessing those use values they need for life. So the worker is, in a sense, 
directly connected to human needs in a way that the capitalist is not. And that gives them a kind of revolutionary imperative, a revolutionary rationale. Um, one note I made in this, the margin here, was just revenge of the living. <laughs> like, it's yeah. the revenge of life against death, basically. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's the revenge of life against dead labor, right? Yeah. I appreciated a lot of that, and I appreciated this kind of thrust to, like, and it's 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 all reading out of Marx, but, like, this, this thrust to, like, actively constituting cooperation and association as, like, an act of growth of... Like the, the the only path to revolution is through through organization and through actively building organization to 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 grow the power of like the proletariat as an organized force so that it can actually challenge capital at the scale the capital needs to be challenged at. I don't know. It rhymes with a lot of the stuff that we've had on this show, right? As a project that like you have to organize to a scale that like the proletariat as a as an agent, as a like honest to god real like social agent can grab the beast by the throat and strangle it until it dies. And actually take over from it, but that's that's impossible if you don't organize. And that the, the thrust to organize is that you must live, right? Like that it is the access to use values and the imperative of life that kind of needs to overcome the the dead eyed repetition of of dead labor. One thing I would say as well about the pessimism of that whole section as well is that like the fact that like that the proletariat of the their organizations went one way and they went for the combination of capital essentially. When capital leads to the next, you know, mega crisis or whatever is coming, it is completely feasible that the socialist co communist current that we're in, like that, we are actually doing historical or bringing works to people so that they can learn these lessons. You know, you know, it's not like the bourgeois revolutions were successful the first time. You know, they all got their asses. They got their asses kicked. Not at all. <laughs> So much for the Ambrosian Republic. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I think that's the case, right? That, like, we're, we're learned, like, it is, it is a learning process, and there's only been one or two generations of these things to, to learn from. And yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I guess that that's maybe also for me a kind of imperative to kind of um, let the mid century unionist stuff go, right? Like to, to mourn the dead and move on, right? That like this this was a thing we could learn from, but it's it's imperative to not simply resuscitate it and keep it moving and keep it keep it on its legs. But yeah, the the point is well taken. Like this it's not that there's it's not that there's nothing to learn from from the, the previous things, but maybe we also learn the mistakes, right? That like because I, th I think maybe the, that that war games quote I had earlier, like that it's a strange game and the only winning move is to not play is kind of the imperative there that like playing the game playing the rules playing the game by the enemy's rules within their framework is a, always a w losing strategy you have to be building a parallel game and playing that instead and then just slay the motherfuckers who designed the you know the game that you were playing that the, there has to be a refusal and like the union stuff didn't often have that character of refusal like refusal to play by the logic and refusal to kind of do its thing within their framework it, it became a kind of system of being like essentially outsourced HR firms for capitalist like nation building. It's not to say Marx, Marx's observations were completely unfounded. They just lost to the economistic ones. Yeah. And it, you know, again, it's that thing where, you know, Ezri, Ezri's been saying like, well, we, we need to use analytical Marxism to look at what are the situations in which it, it is not only long-term rational for the proletariat to act on these imperatives, 
but short-term or medium-term rational for them to do that. And because that gets at the core questions of why does economism win, right? There's a good quote here, like, from Marx and Engels about um, what are the role of unions. I thought this stuff was really important and strong. It is necessary that our aims should be thus comprehensive to include every form of working class activity, to have made them of a special character. To have made them of a special character would have been to adapt them to the needs of one section. The association does not dictate the form of political movements. It only requires a pledge as to their end. It is a network of affiliated societies spread all over the world of labour. In each part of the world, sorry, yeah. And then Engels goes on. I think that's from, from the setting up the First International. But Engels, in an article in 1881, says, uh, looks towards a movement in which trade unions no longer enjoy the privilege of being the only organisation of the working class, but instead form an integral part of a general union, a political organisation of the working class as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty strong stuff. That's good. I love that stuff. Uh, Exactly. The cooperative commonwealth. And that's where Burkett says, oh, and we can see ecological movements based on this use value imperative being a part of that whole organization. Yeah. Absolutely. The the, the top level organization of the proletariat, right? And like it's, it's thrusting towards this kind of human nature fusion of like rational kind of planning of our, our activities so that in, instead of having our social activities be validated ex post by market relations, we validate them beforehand and like do things that make any fucking sense at all and integrate concern for e- ecological concerns and all, all sorts of other concerns into the process of constructing our own lives rather than following the sort of blind idiot fiddle player in the void that is uh, the value form and just dancing into oblivion. Right. So in chapter 14, uh, Nature and Associated Production, Burkett is doing something quite similar to what he did in section one of the book, where he is essentially laying out analytical criteria for taking Marx seriously, or taking Marxian communism seriously as a ecologically viable form of social interaction and then explaining how Marxian communism does not violate these criteria. So what he's essentially trying to sidestep is the question of socialist planning, right? He's, he's saying, I'm not concerned here about whether Marxian communism is strictly feasible in its particulars, but whether it is conceivable as ecologically sound. And what he basically comes to as his point is that capitalism through the mechanism of socially necessary labor time is always validating production in a post hoc way, an ex post way, right? We, we make things for the market And then we see if they sell or not. And if they sell, well, they're part of what is socially necessary and our labor is validated. Whereas Marx sees sees communist production as being something that is done collectively, not in a state-planned way, but in a kind of a a way that is quite similar to what you see in Paricon, that that kind of like American version of like anarchy quote-unquote anarchist 
socialist planning, although it's honestly closer to what Marx said than anything that's usually <laughs> identified as Marxian planning. Uh, council communism, is it is kind of constantly, is it like council communism? Uh, yeah, it's like you have locales that do, that have planning boards, and then those planning boards aggregate up into nationwide planning boards, and so on and so on. But it's it's very like localist. And, and Marx... Marx also has a localist emphasis about planning, and this is furthermore validated by the literature that looks at commons management, like Ostrom, and the literature that looks at indigenous economic planning systems in North America. This is another thing that Burkett brings up, and how they manage commons. And what it, what it shows is that there is a value to the producers being close to the land and being close to the resources that they are managing in terms of improving values and efficacy of stewardship. And that distinguishes the form of production from common state management, where you have state bureaucrats who are separated from the conditions of production and are just sort of setting down general rules but they don't have that connection that encourages values of stewardship. So that's a justification for localism. So yeah, we're talking about localist production, and the other point is ex-ante production, which is to say the collective rationality of the producers and their democratic decision-making is what determines what is socially necessary and what is produced. So the idea is that by using their reason, they are able to integrate ecological rationality into production because they are the stewards of the very uh, land and resources that they are working on. And so it's, it's like that thing you said earlier, Tom, about you don't want to just waste the quality of your soil in order to make a quick buck if you are tied to that productive paradigm, right? Like then you're just shooting yourself in the, in the foot. It, it struck me as being quite like what I get from the beer reading group is like your system one. You kind of leave them, you leave them. Yes. System one. Exactly. You, leave them alone. you, let, yeah. you let them potter along with maybe some general system five type directions or something, but like uh, they're, they're the people who should be deciding like how to grow the, Brussels sprouts are, you know, whatever the hell. But yeah, you're, you're right that, that this, this this feels very much of a piece with the sort of Beerian, Marxoid sort of stuff we've always been gabbing about, right? Like this is kind of right up our alley. And I, I kind of like this chapter quite a bit for that. And I, I like them like going through and be like, hey, look, all of this shit is in Marx. Like it's it's fine. It's right there. It's 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 in the text. You're, we're, 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 we're fine, right? Yeah, and the reason why I specifically say that the Paracon is close to what Marx is saying is because it does involve that ex-ante planning. You set out your needs in advance, and then there is a resolution mechanism by which they're validated. And that distinguishes it from... Burkett brings up Alec Nove here, who is a market socialist of a kind, or Cockshot, right, who is saying ex-ante planning and means of production 
ex post validation of consumer goods is, is the system that he pr- proposes, right? So the associated producers are going to democratically plan out their general production imperatives. And accordingly, the means of production will be produced according to like that rationale. But when it comes to consumer goods, you are going to use your labor labor time credits in the clock shot system to purchase what you want and what is available on the market. So you have that, that ex post validation and the maintenance of a kind of value form. Whereas what you see in Paracon or what you see in Marx is this idea of planning in advance, producing and then consuming, right? And if if you have waste because you didn't actually want the things you made, well, then they're just wasted, right? And you have to wait till the next production period to make the thing you want. So that's kind of where we need to slot in the kind of like cybernetics angle that you'd be kind of building these like adaptive models that hopefully smooth over a lot of these kind yes. of problems. And it's, yes. it's partially, partially kind of like, it's it's like in a lot of the cybernetic stuff, it is, you know, ex ante sort of prediction and planning, but then with corrective feedback from the, yes. the output side. And that's, that's different from kind of, any, I guess, it doesn't quite fit any of the things we've just described. It's a... Uh, perhaps even a kind of innovative way of doing this like is yeah i i think what you need to see is the addition of learning mechanisms to a paracon type democratic ex-ante planning system as we noted in the the beer reading groups and a lot of this sort of stuff that like beer brings up that like in the presence of this negative feedback correction stuff like homeostatic balance the feedback circuit can end up de- dominating the loop so that it's like feedback is much more effective than you think it would be. It's it's surprisingly effective at, at, at how, like even simple error correcting feedback is very effective at actually tuning these things very well. Yeah, you just have to make sure that the the system doesn't learn too much and become uh, overfit. Yeah, but you know, there is a part in this chapter where Burkett criticizes the idea of overemphasizing labor credits or or labor time as the socialist planning mechanism and i i and i think he sort of says that well that was one metric that marx saw as valid in planning but actually there's a much broader view of sort of ex ante planning and and i think that's what kind of distinguishes burkett from cockshot who would emphasize more the labor credits point of view and less that kind of ex-ante planning. Because, you know, there's a sort of view that experience has taught us that if you don't have a market, your system is going to be irrational, right? Because you just don't know exactly what you're going to need until you need it, right? Like uh, the, the, the classic example is uh, like, oh, you, you have like a... Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, my electric shaver, right? I have my electric shaver and the comb on the electric shaver breaks. Well, I couldn't have possibly known in advance that I was going to need that comb. So it's much more rational for me to be able to go out on the market and buy that thing, which I, I realized I needed only at that moment, than to have to say to sit there and wait and say, Okay, I need to wait for the next planning period until I can get a comb, so I guess I'm just not shaving until then. You know, 
that's why you have a beard, Kyle. That's why you got a beard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you know, th- this kind of thing happened in the USSR all the time, right? And it was a, it was an endemic problem, and so that's why they're saying, you know, maybe we need a consumer market. But the alternative would be to say maybe we could have a learning ex ante planning system that could provide for those eventualities. With with some stocks and like sur- like minor surplus, and then you can kind of like just adjust your production downwards to meet the surplus you already have and stuff. So you could have a couple of those things lying around on a shelf in, in a back room somewhere. And that's what Mark said, right? Is you need to have a relative overproduction in order to take account for those things. Well, like you know, when you look at you know the law of large numbers, though, Kyle, even even for weird things like the part of your shaver, yeah, like you know, I used to work for Nectar in England that had like billions of transactions, you know, of every single commodity you could imagine in like like a basic equivalent of Walmart or Tesco's, and they could, you can just predict, you can see predict exactly what you're going to need from everything, like the amount of individual planning that the person needs to do should be just really absorbed by systems like system ones yes. and things like that who just know what's needed that's the way i look at it you know and a paricon probably or maybe sometimes Marx might go too much into the nitty gritty that like we can let things to, to work on their own steam yeah and that's that's kind of what we've learned from like you know the examples given in people's republic of walmart Right, that there are learning systems that can actually smooth over these problems, and like the stuff in beer as well, like where like redundancy and slosh actually contributes to resilience in these systems. Like it's fine to have a couple of boxes and these things just hanging around; it's it's not a problem at all. I think maybe when people talk about planning, they get too bogged down on the like notion of like planning down to the molecular level of like precisely what's going to go into it. And it's like, nah, fuck it. Like a couple of extra thousand of those columns is going to be fine. Just leave it, just leave them in the storeroom. Yeah. Like it reminds me of that idea of, you know, like the complexity and the, what is it called? The anastomotical reticulum. <laughs> anastomotic reticulum. Yeah. Anastomotic reticulum where like the amount, the, 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 the size of the solution, possible solutions is two to the N times two to the N. To the power of two to the end, sorry. And like, so like that's just incredible complexity. And so you, you, you should be looking to reduce your variety. That's the whole point in not going hell for leather pre-planning like a Paracon goes. Well, it's, it's like the system needs to suggest the basket of goods which you would choose from. As opposed to just, you know, having every possible production under the sun and you have to do you have to do a lot of repeated work of ranking things every single time you go through a planning period the system needs to help you labor save in that regard yeah so that's uh, pretty much the book right I think there's there's one tiny little bit towards the end that I quite liked that like he's saying that like for Marx in communism we'd be focusing in, on use values like wealth wealth as such like right. in utility rather than exchange value via labor time and that eventually labor time would be measured as the cost of getting use values it would be a it would be a kind of measure of anti value in a sense and that like this is what it cost us to get this utility and it's a bad thing and we should minimize the amount of cost that is necessary so you'd have that like mega automation imperative but from a very different angle where they're not trying to like squeeze out labor time they're trying to they're trying to minimize the human cost of acquiring uh, a comb for that that razor they're not saying like yeah gdp they're saying <laughs> yeah. Boo, gdp boo 
get that shit out of here. Don't need us. Don't want us, you know, get that stuff away from me, you know? Well, and, and, and you know, to be fair, this is why Cockshot emphasizes labor time accounting because he says it's it's going to be a very efficient way of economizing on labor time in that way, right? If, if everything is costed in labor time and it's an honest accounting, you're going to want to bring that down as much as you can. Yeah, you want to you know, regulate that to zero if you can. And that's, it's, a, it's a good note to end on. Yeah, I mean, that, that is basically the book. I think, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of really good content in there. It, it's fucking excruciating to read the damn thing, but I'm, I'm glad I read it. Do we have any other final, final remarks? There's one, there's one thing I'd like to say as well as before is like about how Marx talks in the last chapter about how communism would be like kind of combining nature and uh, human activity together in a kind of a unity that Marx directly opposed or something. For Marx and Engels, people and nature are not two separate things. Hence, they speak of people having an historical nature and a natural history. Yeah. And uh, I, I just really like that, that quote. I thought that was really bad. Like the book... It's chock-a-block full of really brilliant quotes and chock-a-block of kind of very well-made-out, thought-through arguments. But it's got a terrible, terrible style and it repeats itself. It beats you or the head with the arguments in a way that is not enjoyable. It's like an abuse. (laughs) It's like an abusive parent making you, like, practice your piano. You'll end up being pretty good at piano, but fucking hell, you'll hate the damn instrument. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think I think I kind of still would recommend it, though, for quite a lot of people. Like, I mean, it's... it's... I would recommend it if you're like, I want to know what Mark said about this particular thing. Then go in this book, find the right section, <laughs> and read it. Yeah. And you'll find out what he said. You know, it's a good reference text. It's not a good read-through. I, I, I can't, you know, maybe you could pick away at it and it would be all right, but don't mainline this thing. It's, it's no good. Well, that's it for this episode. Until next time, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod and on the web at GeneralIntellectUnit.net. If you go to patreon.com slash GeneralIntellectUnit and throw us a couple of bucks a month, you can get access to our community Discord, where we hang around with the community and talk about cybernetic communism. Plus, it's also a great way to support the show. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, Mortal Science, and Jumpsuit Utopia. They're wonderful shows and wonderful folks. Until next time, thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>